Okay, first, to get to grips with this story, you have to know what a turf cutter is and why they do what they do. But in order to understand that, you have to understand what a bog is. And to understand that, you have to understand what peat is. And that means you need to understand sphagnum moss. Which means we're starting in probably the worst place you can start one of our episodes, four levels deep. But since being four levels deep is what this particular story is all about, let's give it a shot. Sphagnum is a genus of moss that is very good at storing water, even if it's dead. It can hold at least 20 times its own weight in water, often more. Because of this, sphagnum moss can grow in otherwise dry conditions, bringing water with it as it goes. Then, as bits of the plant die, the water is released, creating damper conditions that are even more favorable to the moss growing along behind it. As it does so, it can create a type of large wetland habitat known as a mire or bog. The reason the bog forms isn't so much because of the water the moss brings, though. Instead, it's because of the way the moss grows. The new mosses really like sunlight, so new growth is always forming over the top of old growth. This pushes the old moss further and further down into the water until the old moss is cut off from the light and dies and begins to decay. If the water the moss is growing in is acidic and nutrient poor, for example, a pool of water formed over a limestone base, you know, like happened in Ireland over the course of several million years, to pick a totally random example. If the water is acidic and nutrient poor, then the dead moss is very slow to decay. There isn't much that is going to survive the acidity to speed the process up. As successive layers of new moss form at the top and the old layers are constantly weighed down and die, piling one atop the other, they begin to compress and pack tighter and tighter until a relatively solid mass of plant matter forms, called peat, hence peat bog. One of the most important things to know about a proper peat bog is that below the surface, they become anaerobic. That is, there is very little oxygen below the surface, meaning even fewer things can survive in a peat bog that might have survived the natural acidity in the first place. So peat bogs generally tend to decay even less as they get bigger. Lots of stuff growing at the top, very little going on underneath. They're great places to find things like carnivorous plants, such as sundews and pitcher plants, which don't need to rely on the nutrients that other types of plants would normally need. Those sorts of nutrients just aren't freely available in a peat bog due to the lack of decomposition. As that peat builds up, fills in, and solidifies, it becomes more and more useful. And useful things get used by man to do useful things with. For example, if you go out into a peat bog and cut out some of that peat, also called turf, you get a chunk of something that, when dried, makes an excellent fuel for your little campfire or stove at home, particularly because it is so high in carbon. Because the carbon the moss collects over its life via photosynthesis and generally being alive never gets released back into the atmosphere as the plant decomposes because, as we said, decomposition barely happens in a peat bog. Peat bogs take more carbon out of the atmosphere than they put back in, making them a natural carbon sink. And all that concentrated carbon burns slow and hot, which is just the sort of thing you want on a cold, damp Irish night. Which means you'll have any number of people going out into the peat bogs to cut it up and pack it home to use as fuel. And now that we've made it back to turf cutters, we can tell the rest of the story. When, in 2016, Jack Conway was working as a turf cutter on Emla Bog, 
cutting, as we have explained, turf, and he struck something, he probably didn't think much of it. People are always finding things in bogs. Some would be very exciting, hordes of gold and caches of weapons and tools certainly, hidden in the bog to keep them from prying eyes and itchy fingers. Even bog bodies, the remains of dead people cast into the bogs probably as some sort of sacrificial ritual from days long past. Some of the things that come out of bogs have been dated as far back as the Iron Age. Some wouldn't have been exciting at all. Tree trunks, dead animals, that sort of thing. All of which, for reasons which we have now explained, would have been very well preserved down through the years, and almost all of which had to be reported under the law to local authorities. What Jack Conway probably didn't expect was the yellowish-white waxy substance he pulled up instead. Weighing in at 22 pounds and located 12 feet below the surface of the bog, it was probably quite the job to bring it up. But once he had done so, Jack would have known what he had, if for no other reason than the smell. A rich, flavorful smell from a substance that we humans have been adding to almost everything we cook or bake over the 10,000 or so years we've known how to make it. What Jack Conway had was a big old lump of perfectly preserved 2,000-year-old bog butter. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. The Irish in particular seem to have a number of rituals and superstitions around butter and the making of butter, one of which may have been to sacrifice a certain amount of it to the gods by burying it in a bog. Although honestly, given the properties of the bog and its relatively cooler temperatures in general, the real aim in burying butter was more likely to be as a preservative method. Even so, the Irish mythology surrounding butter did point out how hard the stuff was for them to make. See, the original creation of butter was probably pretty simple, accidental even. But in explaining it, it does mean we have to break ever so slightly from the premise of our current series about all things cow, of which this is part three of four, and focus on the other sources of milk around in the ancient world, sheep and goats. We'll get back to cows in a bit, promise. See, back 10,000 years ago or so, cows were the latecomers to the dairy side of human endeavor. It took quite a while before we moved in and began domesticating the aurochs that would eventually become the variety of cattle we have today and around which most of our present-day dairy industry is based. They weren't immediately available to us in the areas of the world in which we started out. What was there was the goat and the sheep, and those would have led the domestication of the cow by about a thousand years which means it was principally their milk and its products we first made use of when we went looking for other sources of fat and protein-rich nutrients. As we discussed in our previous episode on milk, pastoralist societies came along just after hunting and gathering and just before the whole agricultural thing. Nomadic and concerned primarily with the care of livestock, they would follow the herds around as they moved from place to place looking for food on which to graze. Lacking any access to recreational vehicles, trailers, or U-Hauls, the pastoralists would have had to pack their tools and possessions, such as they were, on either themselves or the nearest convenient beast of burden. Say, one of those sheep or a goat. So, if you have, oh, about half a goatskin bottle full of raw, fresh goat's milk collected earlier that morning, and you decide it's more than you want to carry on your person as you go about your day you might decide the best thing to do with it is to strap it to the nearest you or doe and let them carry it for you while you follow them over the next ridge to that really compelling field of flowers they can just smell on the wind. Fair enough. 
that's all perfectly reasonable. So off the sheep or goats go and off you go following them and through the course of the day, as the sun moves across the sky and it gets warmer and warmer, everyone gets in their 10,000 steps, you and the you. Uphill, downhill, across fields of bushes and fields of stone, you just keep moving in a nice gradual way until you and the herd arrive at a quaint little valley covered with some sort of no doubt delicious to the animals desert scrub. It doesn't do much for you, but they seem to like it and set about trying to eat up as much of it as they can. But you're hungry and thirsty too. After all, you had to walk just as far and you had the job of making sure they all got there safely. They only had to look out for themselves but you had to look out for them and yourself and anyone else that came along with you. You've earned a big drink and maybe a bit of a slice off of last night's goat leg. So you head over to your pack goat, we've decided they're all goats for now, and take up the goat skin with the goat's milk in it, open the top and tip it back. But instead of a nice fresh drink of goat's milk, there's a thunk, a brief dribble of some watery type stuff, and then nothing. No delicious goaty milk comes pouring out. You do not feel properly refreshed. What happened? Well, what happened was you just made butter. Maybe you didn't know you were going to be making it, but you made it all the same. All it took was some whole milk and a little continuous action. See, primarily milk is what is called a fat in water emulsion. An emulsion occurs when two liquids that normally can't be mixed together, oil and vinegar for example, are forced to mix together to make a tasty vinaigrette dressing. In milk, the two mixed liquids are water and fat, which, in a case of the most obvious foreshadowing ever, is called butterfat. What keeps the two apart from each other is a tiny membrane around each fat molecule, sealing it off from both the water and the other fat molecules. So while the goat was walking around with that goat's milk in that goat's skin, these molecules of fat were rubbing up against each other as they were being jostled around. This caused some of those protective membranes around the fat to break, releasing the fat into the water where it could find other now free-roaming molecules of fat and stick together. Eventually, they started to clump up, and as they did so, they began to trap air between the molecules producing a foam. The foam grows in size until it starts to run out of free-roaming fat molecules with which to capture the air, at which point the trapped bubbles of air pop, run together, and the foam leaks, creating that thing our father loves, but we can't stand. Buttermilk which we're told they just don't make like they used to. There's hardly any butter in it at all now. What remains that isn't buttermilk has transformed from that fat and water emulsion to a water in fat emulsion. It's actual butter. So that goat skin you tipped up to take a nice drink of milk out of gave you a quick splash of what was actually terrible to us buttermilk before the opening was plugged up by a lump of fresh butter. Thank goodness. That's the entire principle behind making butter. Get some whole milk, or for better results, fresh cream, and agitate it until it separates into buttermilk and butter. Which, if you're doing it by hand, can take anything from a few minutes to more than an hour, depending on such a wide variety of factors that you can begin to see why the Irish came up with so many do's and don'ts about butter churning. Come May 1st, the first day of summer, you would do well to set a watch on your cows the night before, May Eve. Too many things could go wrong, all of which would mean that you got less butter from your cows than you expected for the rest of the year. Light a bonfire the night before and let it die out. Drive the cattle through the warm ashes of the fire to purify them and prevent witchcraft and fairy influences from stealing your butter and making animals sick. 
lock the cows up and guard them at night, for if anyone sneaks in and even pretends to milk them in the name of the devil, it'll be a full year before butter production returns to normal. Guard the wells, too, because on the first morning of May at sunrise, a hag could take the flour from the well, as it was called, and steal all the butter your cows should have been making. Giving away butter on May Day or lending a churn to someone was bad news, because witches could come in disguise and use these things to steal all the summer butter you might otherwise have produced. Hares found among the cattle were witches in disguise, supping on the milk of cows as they went about and stealing all the butter they would have produced for the witch's own churn. In addition to all this, any farmer who wished a run of good butter production for the year was well advised to get May Day's churning done before sunrise. The list goes on and on. If someone arrives at the house while churning is going on, they are expected to take a few minutes at the churn helping out. This proves they aren't a witch intent on stealing the butter production. But really, all this superstition and folklore was just a means of trying to explain and prevent poor butter production at a time when things like temperature, humidity, atmospheric pressure, and other uncontrollable factors could make it very difficult for butter to come together in a timely manner. It wasn't until the late 19th and early 20th centuries that butter making became anything like reliable and predictable. Now, of course, you can have your choice of butters, and there are certainly a number to choose from, even outside the choice of mammal milks from which they can be made, because the milk of any mammal with sufficient fat content can be used to make butter. On your supermarket shelf, though, you're most likely to encounter but two choices to make when selecting your basic cow milk butter. Salted versus unsalted, and sweet cream versus cultured. To begin with, many people think that the opposite of salted butter is sweet cream butter, and that cultured butter is some sort of rarefied specialty butter. Unsalted butter lives in there somewhere, but they aren't quite sure where it is, what its function is, or why they'd want unsalted butter aside from maybe lowering blood pressure. Nearly all of which is wrong. To be considered butter in the United States, the Food and Drug Act declared that butter must be made up of at least 80% butterfat, though in practice, most manufacturers go to at least 81%, while European butter makers settle in around 85%. The majority of the rest of the butter is made up of water trapped into butter during the churning and solidifying process. Salted butter is exactly the sort of butter you want on your morning toast. It contains between 1.5 and 3% salt depending on the manufacturer, which in addition to giving us the familiar butter taste, helps preserve the butter and prevent spoilage generally allowing it to be kept out of the fridge and on the counter in a dark, closed container at room temperature for up to two weeks, allowing it to be soft and ready to spread when you need it, instead of hard, cold, and unhelpful first thing in the morning. Unsalted butter is just as the name implies, unsalted. You wouldn't particularly want to leave it out on the counter more than an hour or so to allow it to soften before using it or putting it away again. This is the butter to use for cooking and baking, because containing no salt at all, it allows the chef or cook to add exactly as much salt as a recipe needs without throwing off the dish by adding a random unknown amount as salted butter would do. So there's your first choice, unsalted butter for using in recipes, salted butter for your morning toast and as a spreadable topping. The other choice, and the one few people realize can be made after the salted unsalted one, is whether you want sweet cream or cultured butter. In the old days, Milk was allowed to sit for a day or two as the cream separated out of it and floated to the top. Once it had, it would be skimmed off the top of the milk 
and put in an open container where it was allowed to sit for another day or two while enough cream was gathered to make it worth doing something with. During all this waiting time, the cream would begin to ferment slightly and go a bit sour. Cream left longer becomes the delicious product known as sour cream, but make butter from it before that much fermentation takes place and you have what is known as cultured butter which the Europeans seem to enjoy a bit more than the Americans, who like their butter made from as fresh a cream as possible that hasn't been allowed to ferment at all. Sweet cream butter. No, there isn't sugar added to it, it just hasn't fermented. Most supermarkets these days allow a wide enough selection that you can choose any combination of salted and unsalted butter made from sweet or cultured cream. Unless, of course, you were particularly influenced by French emperors in the 1800s, advertisers in the mid to late 20th century, or random headline-grabbing research pronouncements of the last 30 years or so. In the 1880s, Emperor Napoleon III of France decided he was tired of not having enough butter at his table. The reason he didn't have enough butter? Why, because the military and, especially, the poor were eating it all and production just couldn't keep up. So he offered a prize to anyone who could basically create something that bore no relation to butter at all but could be given to the poor and the military in place of butter, and they could like it or lump it, I'm the emperor after all. Shortly thereafter, oleomargarine, a combination of fatty acids including margaric acid and beef fat, was invented which, when spread on bread, was not entirely distastefully terrible and yuck. The peasants quite literally ate it up, and the inventor, Mage Murray, won the prize and went on to a margarine-based life of fame and fortune. Just kidding, he went out of business two years later and sold the patent off to a Dutch company you might have heard of called Jurgens, which later became part of a global company you've definitely heard of, Unilever. Meanwhile, the Germans came up with their own recipe and began making the stuff for their own people. In 1871, the same year the French chemist was going out of business, Henry Bradley of New York patented the idea of mixing vegetable oils with animal fats to make margarine, which... Once beef fat supplies became a problem in the 1900s, was suddenly THE way to make margarine. However, the real boom came in the 30s during the Depression and in the late 40s and 50s during World War II rationing, when butter and animal fat supplies were… running thin. Suddenly, everyone was ditching the animal fat and switching to vegetable oils and fats as the new go-to way to make margarine, and they haven't looked back since. The only real hiccup was the entire dairy industry. Butter from cows is naturally slightly yellow, but margarine was a pasty white color naturally that most people associated with lard. Surprisingly, the idea of putting lard all over everything didn't appeal to most people, so margarine manufacturers were artificially coloring margarine to look more like butter, which upset the real butter makers in places like Wisconsin. It might hurt their business if folks couldn't tell which was real butter and which was margarine if they didn't think at least one of them looked and potentially tasted like lard. You can see how that might be bad for business. For the dairies, we mean. So off they went to make a law saying you couldn't artificially color your product to look like butter, you big margarine cheaters. Which was fine. The margarine companies just included packets of yellow dye you could work through your otherwise white margarine to make it look like butter anyway. Problem solved. Fortunately, by 1955, someone realized how awfully silly it all was and the laws were repealed. With World War II over and a lot more companies capable of making margarine in existence, 
the race was on to market and hopefully sell a whole lot of margarine to a whole lot of people, with the biggest rewards reserved for those who could make their margarine taste most like butter, which up to that point hadn't really been the point of the whole thing. This was essentially won in the late 70s and early 80s by combining dairy cream and vegetable oils into a product advertised by a model from the cover of ladies' romance novels. I can't believe it's not butter. More of a comment on the regulation and definition of butter than on a taste that most people, by then, hadn't tasted in their entire life. Because by then, we'd all learned about words like poly and monounsaturated good fats and the terrors of cholesterol, which meant that butter, with its loads of saturated fats, was very, very bad for us indeed. But wait! Some margarines contain loads of trans fats, and those are bad too. Not only do they make more bad cholesterol, they get rid of good cholesterol. Whatever shall we do? We'll all get heart disease. And how come these scientists can't make up their minds? Well, let's settle things with a quote from Harvard Medical School's health publishing health beat column. The truth is, there never was any good evidence that using margarine instead of butter cut the chances of having a heart attack or developing heart disease. Making the switch was a well-intentioned guess. Today, the butter versus margarine issue is really a false one. From the standpoint of heart disease, butter remains on the list of foods to use sparingly because it is high in saturated fat. Margarines, though, aren't so easy to classify. The older stick margarines turned out to be clearly worse for you than butter. Some of the new margarines that are low in saturated fat, high in unsaturated fat, and free of trans fats are fine as long as you don't use too much. They are still rich in calories. So, when it comes down to it, their best advice is read the back of the box and consume in moderation. Either that or just throw the whole thing in a bog. You've reached the end of another GM Word of the Week episode. Thanks for hanging in there. We'll wrap up this whole series next week, and we're willing to bet you can guess what the final topic is going to be. This week's episode, as with all our episodes, has been brought to you by our patrons on Patreon. For as little as a dollar, you can join the ranks of our elite core of show supporters who keep these episodes coming on a regular basis, full of fun facts, the occasional laugh, and inspiration for your tabletop gaming needs. It's good stuff. We like making it, they like supporting it, and if you like hearing it, consider joining us at gmwordoftheweek.com. Just click the yellow banner at the top and it'll show you how. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Don't Butter Me Up, Casey. Music was supplied by the naturally musical talents of Blue Dot Sessions. With enough butter, anything is good.